Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for immediate ceasefire in Gaza in an extraordinary video summit with BRICS leaders. Israel and Hamas confirm deal on temporary truce and releasing hostages. China and Uzbekistan hold first foreign minister's strategic dialogue in Beijing. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. In a video conference with leaders of the BRICS nations on Tuesday, Chinese President Xi Jinping called for an immediate ceasefire in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Gao Yiming has the details. Meeting for the first time since BRICS expanded its members in August, the leaders focused on the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Xi Jinping called for involved parties to stop the violence and attacks on civilians and to release the people held hostage. He also asked for more humanitarian assistance to Gaza and the smooth operation of humanitarian corridors. The Chinese president called for the international community to take concrete action to prevent the crisis from escalating into a wider conflict in the Middle East. Xi Jinping says the fundamental solution to this recurring conflict is to implement the two-state solution, restore the legitimate rights of the Palestinians, and establish an independent Palestinian state. He says China has been actively engaging in the mediation of a ceasefire since the conflict broke out in October and has been providing emergency aid to Gaza. Holding the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council for November, China has asked for the extension of the opening of humanitarian corridors to Gaza. Other leaders at the meeting also expressed concern over the conflict and denounced any form of violence against innocent civilians. They stressed the role of dialogue in addressing the crisis and supported all efforts to achieve a peaceful resolution. Other BRICS leaders at the meeting also called for peace and justice to end one of the worst humanitarian crises in decades. Now, for more on this, we are joined by Dr. Wang Jin. He is associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you, Dr. Wang. It's good to have you back on the show again. Thanks for having me again. Now, Dr. Wang,、uh, why is it important that BRICS countries make efforts and have their voices heard over the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Well, the BRICS countries—they、uh, are important.、Uh, on the one hand, it's a very important mechanism. I mean, the multilateral mechanism.、Uh, uh, we have to know that the BRICS represents、uh, the, the, the new economies as well as.、Uh, A new strength in the international arena, as well. And on the other hand, it also represents、uh, the motivation of these new developing and、uh, new economies' uh, uh, ambition or the hopes to reform the injustice and、uh, the inequality in the right in the right now、uh, on the,、uh, and the current international order. So that is why. Uh, the BRICS mechanism is important. The BRICS mechanism will play a bigger role in the future. And on the other hand, we have to know that it's a very, very summit、uh, held by the BRICS countries, member states,、uh, over the Israeli and Palestinian issues. Because ever after the erupt of this、uh, round of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict,、uh, there has been a summit held by Arab states.、Mm. The, there has been summit held by. Uh, the, 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 the Islamic states, and of course, there have been, 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 the, been a very urgent meeting,、uh, emergent meeting、uh, held by the United Nations Security Council. But the, besides these mechanisms, the, the BRICS become another very important platform, who, which expressed the very deep concern、uh, over the, the, the status of Israeli the Palestinian conflict. So its voices represent, as we mentioned, not only the not only the developing countries, not only the the, the members, but also it represents the trends of international society over how this trend, how this、uh, the, the conflict should be maintained and managed, and how the relations between Israel and Palestinians should be、uh, should be constructed.
Mm. So I think it's it's why it's very important. Mm. Well, Dr. Wang, the meeting is said to have been staged at the invitation from South Africa. So why is that the case, and what is South Africa's interests and also appeals on this issue? Well, South Africa is, uh, is, uh, has been a very important town, uh, state with a very uh, special and strong interest over Israel and Palestinian issues because South Africa, we know that it was transformed. It is, it is a country transformed from the uh, colonies and from the, the state uh, with, uh, with the bias and the produce, uh, and with the bias, very uh, radical uh, bias, uh, radical, uh, radicalized bias. Uh, against uh, the, uh, the the local black people from the from from the white people mm-hmm. into the very very so-called democratic state. So that is why after the it, uh, the the after it's transformed into uh, into the very uh, state with much more open, much more inclusive in the 1994, uh, the South Africa has already has been always keeping a very very close. Eye over the development of the Israeli-Palestinian relations. Mm. So during the past eight years, given the Israeli expansion in the West Bank and the Eastern Jerusalem and the Palestinian territories, and also the very growing pressure from Israelis uh, over the blockade of the Gaza Strip of uh, of the Palestinian people, mm. so the South Africa has already repeatedly expressed its concerns over the Israeli deeds. And mm. uh, and on many occasions they threatened to cut the ties with Israel. So that is why after this outbreak of this round conflict, South Africa together with Djibouti, together with Bangladesh, mm. uh, they 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 sent a case appeal to the international court, and also they uh, they they started to to hope to cut the diplomatic ties with Israel. Mm. So that is why now we witnessed that the South Africa, they organized this summit, a very special summit, and they have a very special interest over this issue. Mm. Now, we already talked about uh, China and South Africa. Now, apart from these two countries, what about the appeals and interests of other members in the BRICS group? Uh, yes, the, the appeals and interests of the other members of the BRICS might, uh, might be first. Uh, slightly, mm-hmm. uh, because some states may highlight the very uh, importance of restoring peace, and but some other states might uh, focus upon uh, the the very high needs of international uh, of constructing international uh, justice and international order. But no matter what kind of the remarks, what kind of rhetoric, and what kind of what kind of expressions, I think the common uh, the, the common interests are very clear. That is that uh, the, on the, on the one hand. The Israeli Palestinian conflict should be ended uh, mm-hmm. as soon as possible and as early as possible. Uh, and on the other hand, that the international assistance should be organized immediately into the hands of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, that uh, the international order, which uh, which given which which gives to the uh, to the uh, to the ongoing uh, conflict and the lasting conflict between Israel and Palestinians, should be reformed. And the the voices of the developing countries and the new economies should be heard uh, by the international society. So that is why I think it is a very successful summit, mm-hmm. uh, and which uh, which to get which very successfully gather the consensus of the membership member states. Mm. Now, Chinese President Xi Jinping called for a ceasefire, quick humanitarian assistance, and also international joint efforts in stopping the violence from spreading. Now, what are the significance of these measures, and what has China done? I think it is a very important uh, measure that are taken by China because uh, because what the, what uh, President Xi. Uh, called for a ceasefire. This is a very highly needed thing and the most priority in the in this round of the conflict between Israel and Palestinians. Uh, the, uh, the, of course, every side, uh, every side of every relevant side of the Israeli-Palestinian issue, they call for the ceasefire. They hope the ceasefire could arrive immediately. So that is why she's remarks, she's calls are are highly respected and highly welcomed by the related parties. Mm. And the other hand, uh, the quickly humanitarian assistance and international joint efforts. Uh, uh, over the humanitarian assistance 
are also highly needed because the people in the Gaza Strip are suffering. People in the Gaza Strip are now short of electricity, short of the daily supply, the short of the water, short of the food. So that is why the humanitarian, quick humanitarian mechanism should be organized. The quick humanitarian uh, assistance delivery should be uh, organized. And also the, the, the joint efforts to stop the violence from spreading is also the important issue because now with the upcoming, with, with the coming of the, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it, 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 it leads to the, uh, the worry that this conflict could be spreaded into the other parts of the region, especially into Lebanon, into Syria, into Iraq, mm. into Jordan, into, uh, might into the West Bank or all the Egypt. So that is why uh, that this is very highly needed for the international society to reach the consensus to limit the expansion of this war and to focus upon helping the local Palestinians there to take measures to encourage the, the peace to arrive as early as possible. Mm. Now, Dr. Wang, what has China done? Uh, what are have been China's real efforts in terms of de-escalating the conflict? I think China has done a lot because mm. on the one hand, after the outbreak of this round of the conflict, China, on many occasions, has been uh, uh, repeatedly uh, stressing the needs of restoring peace, of ceasefire, and of calling, and also calling for the international societies to uh, to give more uh, humanitarian assistance to the hands of the Palestinians. And China, uh, with our own uh, hands, uh, within our own capabilities, we transfers a, uh, a lot of schools and uh, transfer the humanitarian aid to the hands of Palestinians through the Palestinian Authority and, uh, and the United Nations. So China has already done a lot and China uh, will continue to do this. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, on many occasions, China stresses the very need to maintain the, the very principle of the Israeli-Palestinian peace of the so-called two-state solution. Right. Because during the past decade, that even this round of two-state solution are weakened, so China stresses the highly needs to, to bring them back, to respect the principle, and that gave the hope and the confidence to the future peace between Israel and Palestinians. Mm. Dr. Wang, how far away from, uh, from a serious uh, sit-down between the parties at the conflict? I think it is still far away because mm. we're talking about now uh, we are witnessing now is a still uh, a temporary ceasefire, mm. uh, so-called a pause, not rather than the the, the long-lasting uh, the, the peace. And so, if we want everybody to sit down, first thing that we should give them show, uh, the confidence and hope that the, the mutual sides could be trusted, mm. uh, so that it's very difficult to reach in a very short term. And meanwhile, we cannot forget that both inside Israelis and the Palestinians, the, there are many groups. There were many uh, parties, there were many camps, and the different camps compete with each other You by using this conflict, by using this uh, rivalry, by using these hostilities between each other. Mm. So I think it might take um, maybe longer term, but no matter what happens, the international society's encouragement, international society's facilitation, and international society's efforts are highly needed, and China mm. would continue to contribute our efforts to mm. reach this process. Right. Thank you. That was Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Coming up, we'll talk about the temporary truce that has been reached between Israel and Hamas. This is World Today. We'll be right back. A pizzeria in a small village in rural China. You heard it. And it serves pizza with stinky mandarin fish, something even some Chinese cannot take. Why would its American owner, Adrian Brill, launch the business in the village? How has it become a Moscow restaurant attracting gluttons flying thousands of miles just for a bite? And after being appointed as a rural ambassador, what's his plan for promoting local development? Check out Adrian's unique experience of integrating his personal interests into China's rural revitalization in the last episode of our special series, My Expat Life in Rural China on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Israel's cabinet has voted to approve a deal to halt fighting in Gaza in exchange for the release of some hostages seized by Hamas. Israel said at least 50 women and children will be released over a four-day truce, and the release of every additional 10 hostages will result in one more day of ceasefire. 
Hamas released a statement welcoming the truce, which it said would also see 150 Palestinians freed from Israeli jails. China says it welcomes the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas and hopes it will help ease the plight of humanitarian crisis and ease tensions. Despite the temporary respite, Israel said the military operations in Gaza will continue. Now, for more, we're joined by Greg Barton, professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor Barton. It's good to have you back on the show again. It's great to be back here. Thank you. Now, Professor,、um, I mean, did the news come as a surprise to you because、uh, truth has been、uh, proved pretty difficult in previous days? And what do you think has laid the foundation for this to happen? It's not really a surprise. I mean, it, it's been six weeks of the most awful kind of fighting. So, in some ways, it's coming later than than had been hoped.、Mm. Uh, There's a lot of hard work behind the scenes. The political wing of Hamas, which probably we can expect is more moderate than the militant wing, the the political leaders are based in in Doha and Qatar, which is where the negotiations have been taking place. We're told that the Americans, but also the Egyptians,、uh, Israel's neighbour, have been involved, and that's critically important because they're looking for what happens after this conflict、um, mm. concludes. But after six weeks of this awful、uh, conflict in Gaza Strip, home to 2.3 million people, there are literally thousands and thousands of people who are at the point of death because of of inadequate nutrition, because of lack of clean water, because of lack of medicine. A lot of the people are very ill and, and sick.、Uh, hospitals are operating without proper medical supplies. So four day truce. I mean, it's very welcome that fifty hostages get released, and hopefully we see more coming.、Mm. But also, this will probably save,、um, in the first instance, hundreds, but eventually perhaps thousands of lives from people who,、uh, without the medical supplies and the the the, the、uh, food, the water, the、um, diesel to run、uh, electrical systems, without that coming through over the next four days, people would die. So this has come just in time、mm. to avoid. Even worse, a humanitarian disaster. As it is, the death toll is at least thirteen, fourteen thousand, of which you know perhaps more than five thousand are children. So it's it's unimaginably horrible,、mm. um, and that that puts pressure on Hamas to negotiate. It puts pressure on the Israeli government, which has elements that are really against such ceasefires. But it's、mm. and America has been pushing a lot of pressure on all parties to. To、um, think of the humanitarian angle, to release hostages, but also to allow supplies into Gaza Strip. So, very, very welcome news and a very good development.、Mm. Now, Professor Barton,、uh, we certainly do hope that you know everything will turn out to be fine. But、uh, in practical、um, the world, how do you evaluate of the feasibility of the truce? How do you see it holding up? Professor. I'm relatively、mm. optimistic. I mean, things could go wrong. It's true because there are many different parties on the Israeli side, on the Hamas side, that could spoil this. But、uh, even though there's low levels of trust between the Israeli government and Hamas, nevertheless, Israel has decades of experience in hostage negotiations.、Mm. There are people who are experts in this. There are back-channel communications. The fact that Doha has been able to be used as a neutral territory in the region. The fact that Israel's neighbour Egypt is involved, and that America clearly has been putting a lot of pressure behind the scenes, I, I think there are really、um, good signs that this four-day ceasefire will last, that the hostages will be exchanged, and the fact, as you said, that the Israeli government said every,、uh, for every ten hostages、yeah. will have another day of ceasefire. There's another 180 hostages yet, so there could be another couple of weeks of ceasefire. Probably not all at once, but I mean, the fact that that's public suggests that. Negotiations are well advanced.、Mm. Now,、um, Professor, so the 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 truce said、uh, it will allow humanitarian aid to come into Gaza. I mean, how much help will that be? It will save the lives of hundreds of people in、mm. the next week, and potentially save the lives of thousands of people who otherwise would have died. After six weeks of、uh, really nothing getting through,、Indeed. there's no clean water. There's、uh, You know, food supplies are running out. Enormous queues for bread, for example.、Um, already, citizens of Gaza had very restricted、uh, nutritional、uh, intake because of, of restrictions. 
six weeks of no supplies coming in. Gaza doesn't produce anything. Uh, you know, this is the getting to the point of crisis for 2.3 million people. And then you've got people who have been injured um, mm. from uh, the aerial campaign and the fighting, and, and people who are, you know, have underlying sicknesses, diabetes or, you know, heart disease or cancer, mm-hmm. who are not getting treated. Uh, people who have been operated on without proper medical supplies. So all of those people are at risk of losing their lives in the next, you know, few weeks without without these medical uh, and humanitarian supplies coming through. So this is this is a bigger story than just 50 hostages. This is probably the salvation of hundreds of lives. Mm. Now, Professor, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Qatar and Egypt are among the countries that uh, brokered the deal. I mean, why are the two countries able to play such a role? Well, different motivations. Um, um, Qatar wants to be kind of the Switzerland of the Middle East, of the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it played a similar role with the Taliban, you would recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so groups that otherwise don't have welcome access find a sort of neutral territory in, in Doha, in the, in the capital of Qatar. Uh, it means that Hamas can keep a political wing of a leadership there. The Americans have declared Hamas a terrorist organization, so they legally can't talk to Hamas directly. The same with many other countries. But in uh, in Doha, there's this kind of neutral zone where negotiators can fly in. We saw the head of the CIA, mm. William Burns, fly to Doha. Indeed. We saw the head of Mossad fly to Doha. So that gives you a sense of the high-level negotiations taking place in that neutral space. Mm. Of course, Egypt... Egypt is much more uh, publicly um, upset with its neighbor Israel. It it doesn't want to be lumped with responsibility for the Gaza Strip, which is on its border. And yet Mm. Egypt recognizes that if it's not part of this solution, uh, then it'll have to deal with these problems. So Mm. there are are reasons for Egypt to feel reluctant but, but willing to be engaged. And, of course, Egypt depends on American financial support. And I'm sure the Americans have said, if you want us to support you and the way we have been doing, you need to play your part. Mm, Right. Now, Professor, how do you think this truce, although it's um, temporarily uh, temporary and now we can say it's only four days, how do you think this truce might influence, you know, the situation on the ground moving forward? Well, that's a good question. I think it's more than just a four-day truce Mm -hmm. and humanitarian supplies. That's really important. I think it potentially reflects a, a turning point in the conflict. Israel will go back to fighting the Hamas militants. It wants to neutralize Hamas in terms of its capacity to project power. I mean, it says it wants to eliminate Hamas. You can't do that because it's a social movement and it's a movement of ideas, but you can at least reduce its militant potential and and to remove it from power in the Gaza Strip. We've seen this most intense aerial and then ground campaign in Gaza City in the north. Mm. Uh, that's had unacceptably high levels of civilian lives lost. Now we're told that the Hamas leadership has moved to uh, Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza Strip and that Israel is telling people to leave that area because it wants to conduct operations there after the ceasefire. I think that's where the fighting will shift, but the hope is that it will be lower intensity and more more directly targeted at Hamas militants rather than, unfortunately, thousands of civilians getting caught up in aerial campaigns or other um, you know, uh, impacts of fighting. Mm. But then, Professor, do you think this truce might, uh, you know, um, leave some positive signals for the international community so that, uh, you know, other players uh, in the world might come up and uh, do more in terms of uh, mediation? Yeah, it's a question of mediation. And as they say, it's Mm -hmm. a question of what happens on the day after. The day after military conflict stops, who will rule the Gaza Strip? How will things be run? That's 2.3 million people. It, It needs a lot of effort now it's you know substantially um destroyed perhaps 30% destroyed um who will fund the rebuilding who will ensure security for the rebuilding who will um ensure supplies meet the you know uh, go into this heavily populated area mm-hmm. it's very clear from the statements from the israeli government that they have no real plans i mean they they were you know provoked mm-hmm. into conflict because of the hamas terrorist attacks on october 7th but the They've gone in without really knowing where they're going to um, finish up. Um, they know that they don't want things to go back to the previous status quo, but they don't have any plans for who will run Gaza 
And Egypt and Jordan, the neighbors have said, we don't want to be responsible. Right. But I think actually in the end, mm. Egypt and Jordan will play a role. I think Saudi Arabia will provide leadership hopefully. and financial support. Yeah, hopefully. And, and, and we are seeing negotiations taking place in China. So, yeah, you know, hopefully we can see more. Where, of this kind of effort. But thank you, Professor. That was Greg Bardson at Deakin University in Australia. More to come, Chinese Premier presided over a meeting of China's Central Financial Commission. This is World Today. We'll be right back after a short break. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Chinese Premier Li Qiang, also head of China's Central Financial Commission, presided over a meeting of the commission earlier. The meeting reviewed and adopted a plan for the division of key tasks related to promoting high-quality financial development. It stressed improving the quality of financial services for economic and social development and strengthening support for major strategies, key areas and weak links on the basis of maintaining a prudent monetary policy. The meeting called for more efforts to study and introduce specific policies and measures in areas of tech finance, green finance, inclusive finance, pension finance and digital finance. Now, for more, we're joined by Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Now, first up, uh, why is a central financial commission needed for today's China, as it is a newly established commission? This is a very important question because many people have similar questions and uh, try to get the answer. As we know that... uh, the overall situation in economic de- development in China has been greatly changed, especially in the past three, four years of pandemic. And the international market has changed a lot. They, they have many uncertainties and challenges with many risks in different countries. So these challenges and uncertainties made a heavy pressure and a task for Chinese financial industry. As we know that China has set up its goal that to have to build up a strong financial country, a strong financial economy, without a supervisor or the close monitoring that from the central committee of the party, I think the task could be have having difficulties that to be over uh, overcome. So mm-hmm. in this way, that this central committee. Uh, such a commission is very important and needs the demands of the market. Mm. Now, in naming the premier as head of the Central Financial Commission, what does it tell about you know the central government's approach as well as attitude about governing the finance sector? I think the action taken by the central government shows that uh, the central government has laid the greatest and the topest importance to emphasize the uh, financial industry in China, especially when China adopted a policy that uh, for China's uh, modernization and also to improve its management in the financial sections in order to have a better service for the real economy. As we know, the real economy needs a lot of the financial support, but in the past years, we have some more uncertainties and challenges in this uh, uh, sections. That's why the Premier Li nominated as the head of this commission shows that the uh, greatest importance of the central government and also they can have a very 
high effective management uh, directly on this uh, industrial section. This is a very important precondition to uh, proceed and also to implement all the policies and the measures that are issued by the central government. As we know, this is a, a vertical management is very essential and crucial for China's development. Mm. Now, how do you view the tasks of uh, governing the finance sector for China's central government these days? I mean, what are the biggest challenges? I think they have uh, many tasks, but the major task they uh, should have two things. The first, uh, how to stabilize the, the China's financial industries. As we know, in the past years, that the China's financial uh, industries developed very quick and very fast, but also had some uh, big challenges and problems. So in this way, that they have caused a lot of uh, risks and uh, uh, difficulties on the economic development, especially for the real economy, how to make a good connection between our financial industry to the real economy. So this is a big challenge. But uh, I think this uh, task has been already solved a lot, but still remaining many uh, challenges ahead of us. So this is uh, one of the biggest uh, tasks we are facing, that to stabilize the overall situation. And mm-hmm. secondly, it's very important to have to make avoid any uh, possible and uh, unexpected risks. As we know, international market, they have so many uncertainties. They will try to have more risks, even uh, problems for the Chinese financial industry, how to avoid such challenges from outside. So this is also another task that are faced by the commission. Mm, indeed domestic and international. Now, the meeting identified five key areas in finance uh, to focus on uh, tech finance, green finance, inclusive finance, pension finance, and digital finance. I mean, among the five areas, um, we how, how do we understand these? I mean, we reported uh, a lot on tech and green finance, but what about inclusive finance, as well as pension finance and digital finance? I should say these five areas are key areas mm. that are facing by China's economy development. At the moment, we see all these five sections or elements are closely linked with each other, they are closely connected with each other. Without one of them, that I think the overall situation could be collapsed. This is very important to understand because we should pay all the equal uh, the importance of emphasis on the five areas, especially for those uh, green uh, finance, inclusive finance, and also digital finance, because all these are the key uh, with key technologies. It will decide the speed and the quality of China's economic development. We already proposed a high quality development. Without these five areas in financing industry, I think the so-called high-quality development is an empty world. So in this way, all these five uh, areas should be closely uh, linked together and uh, connected together. We should develop all these five uh, areas in financing sections in the right way and in the right approach and attitude. Mm, indeed. Thank you. That was Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has held the first China-Uzbekistan Foreign Minister's Strategic Dialogue with Uzbekistan's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bakhtia Saidov, on Tuesday in Beijing. Dong Xue has the details. 
A memorandum of agreement was signed in Beijing on Tuesday, officially launching the first China-Uzbekistan Foreign Minister's strategic dialogue. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi described it as a new beginning for the bilateral relationship and expressed hope that this mechanism would foster more mutually beneficial cooperation. China and Uzbekistan are friendly neighbors with a shared future. Despite a changing international geopolitical landscape, our bilateral relations have always developed in a sound and stable manner, maintaining strong vitality. Meanwhile, Foreign Minister Sidavi said Uzbekistan values the relationship with China. He also expressed his personal sentiment of feeling at home here after serving as the ambassador of his country to China from 2017 to 2021. We held a very successful event in Guangdong Province. With your support, we will visit Shanghai. I am sure that the event in Shanghai will also be a success, further enhancing cooperation between our two countries. The strategic dialogue is expected to address various issues, reflecting the shared interests and mutual objectives of China and Uzbekistan on both regional and global platforms. That was Dong Xue with the report. Now, for more, we're joined by Zun Ahmad Khan. She is research fellow at Center for China and Globalization, also visiting scholar with Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University in China. Thank you, Zun. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you, Liu Kun. It's a pleasure. Now,、uh, first up, Zun, in your observation, how important are China and Uzbekistan to each other? I mean, where does one stand in the others or, or in the other ones' overall diplomacy? Well,、uh, you know, honestly, I think there's there's hardly、um, no there's no way to really overstate the importance of this relationship on both sides. First of all, we know that you know、uh, the the degree to which China has been connected. With overall the Central Asian、uh, countries since the 2000s, you know, helped them develop infrastructure, helped、uh, promote regional connectivity, is something that、uh, that has transformed the opportunities within that region. And secondly, we also know, obviously, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization platform. Uzbekistan has been central to that. Uzbekistan is also the country with the largest population and at the heart of Central Asia, right?、Mm. And when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, the starting point was、uh, Central Asia, which again makes Uzbekistan an important and critical partner. So when we come forward, you know, looking at the last ten, fifteen years, the trade between Uzbekistan and China has been exponentially increasing. We saw, according to recent reports, up to more than twenty-seven percent increase in just last year.、Mm-hmm. China is the biggest trade partner. China is the biggest investor. And we also see that Uzbekistan is now keen to, you know, further diversify its economy, and that means they want to introduce green energy, they want to introduce new sectors, and they see China as an integral partner. I'll also quickly add that this year we saw the、uh, the China Central Asia Summit, you know, officially、Indeed. launched, and during that, President Xi and also Uzbek President. Shavkat Mirziyoyev had a bilateral meeting in which they did discuss that we are going to begin a new era of cooperation between our countries from 2023 to 2027, where multiple bilateral documents were signed and priority investment projects were also identified. And these include a diverse range from poverty alleviation, trade and agriculture products,、uh, and we see that during this visit as well. Uh, the foreign foreign minister has visited、uh, various. He has been to the AIIB. He has、mm-hmm. had the Uzbek China business uh, cooperation uh, event as well, where more than three hundred Chinese companies were present. So we see a dynamic interest on、mm-hmm. both sides. You、Indeed. know, to really、uh, take the relationship forward.、Mm. A lot are at stake now,、hmm. Zun. Why do the two countries need to establish、uh, the magne- the mechanism of foreign ministers' strategic dialogue? I mean,、hmm. how does that help elevate、hmm. the relationship? I think uh, uh, you know uh, uh, one one of the things that、uh, that is quite important is is the unique importance. You know,、uh, Uzbekistan being at the center of Central Asia, it says.、Hmm. You know, it is bordering six countries in the region. Uh, including Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, uh, moreover, uh, you know, towards the west as well. So, so Uzbekistan's, you know, bilateral cooperation with China and Uzbekistan's,、uh, the degree to which Uzbekistan is proactive in the region is going to play a vital role when we talk about, you know, even the 
SCO region's uh, overall cooperation, when we talk about the connectivity between the Central Asian and the CPEC corridors. So I think that is in itself a very, makes Uzbekistan stand out in, in a certain way in the Central Asian region. Why should we need a foreign minister's mechanism? I think one reason mm. can be that uh, we see the, that foreign minister uh, Marzayov is, is visiting different uh, companies, different uh, banks. He has a very particular you know, uh, vision to take Uzbekistan's development priorities forward and meet with relevant partners. And I think when President Xi and President of Uzbekistan announced the next the vision for the next five years, mm. it makes even more sense, you know, to expedite that vision, mm. to have it under a foreign ministerial bilateral uh, mechanism where both sides can really understand what can be achieved, what are the priority areas and what can the Chinese partners do for that. Mm. Uh, I will additionally, you know, add that Uzbekistan has uh, has diversified towards green energy. Uzbekistan is looking towards uh, as uh, with a very young population and with with immense potential uh, towards increasing towards the advantages to its economy of industrialization. They are looking to attract Chinese investment in particular sectors. And and on top of that, you know, we also see that Uzbekistan is is seen as as a very important uh, tourism hub as well for mm. the Chinese side. So having, I mean, uh, apart from many other, there are many strategic. Uh, there have been uh, challenges in the region, but there are also multiple opportunities. And with a foreign minister's, uh, you know, mechanism established, uh, the the speed and the ease with which uh, both sides can uh, identify these priority areas will only be improved. Mm, indeed. Now, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi proposed uh, four points in terms of managing the relations, uh, namely faith in unity and trust between the two, create engines for mutual development, and work on nurturing goodwill between the two peoples, and finally establish the base for peace and stability. Now, how do you interpret his proposal? I mean, it's it's completely in line with with uh, the Belt and Road vision and mm. what we call the Shanghai spirit. You know, the point is that um, I think we should. I mean, addressing this question, uh, we should also keep in mind the context in which uh, in which you know today's events in today's world events are unfolding. We are seeing immense challenges on the global level. We are seeing immense polarization being encouraged and induced by countries that should be playing a better leadership role. And in that in that context, you know, it is very important for a country as important as China, for the second most important, you know, second uh, uh, global superpower to to instill a sense of confidence and to to ensure that, you know, whatever cooperation we have is for the mutual benefit. We are not we are not seeking some kind of, uh, you know, military alliances. We don't want to divide a region. We don't want to think in a myopic sense. We are long-term partners. And especially, you know, uh, Uzbekistan, China, the history goes back over 12, 1300 years at least, which is documented. Mm. There is a long-term history of both sides, you know, prospering together. And in that context, you know, to say that our our relationship is about, it's about friendship, it's about also uh, encouraging people-to-people exchanges, encouraging cultural understanding, encouraging people to, you know, uh, explore opportunities in each other's countries. And that is the kind of, you know, uh, uh, messaging we need overall. I think that that has been China's consistent message to countries that let's, let's work in a way that we both can be better off. We clearly see that in Uzbekistan's example as well. We clearly see that with other Central Asian countries' example as well. And we see that, you know, they also definitely see China as a great opportunity. Chinese uh, modernization Mm. has been an inspiration to their domestic modernization goals. Mm. And that is where, you know, this messaging uh, is something that other leaders, other global powers should definitely learn from. Mm. Right. And apart from, uh, aside from what we already discussed, uh, a steady relationship between China and Central Asia in general will contribute to the peace and stability on the Eurasian continent. But uh, um, thank you. That was Zun Ahmed Khan. She's research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, also visiting scholar with the Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University in China. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. In-depth analysis, valuable insights, expert views, presented by an award-winning team. Today.
Keeping you well-informed, up-to-date, and ahead of the news. Show, I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. AI is already transforming the workplace. A new survey done by Access Partnership and Amazon Web Services shows that the change of pace has been astonishing. Seventy-three percent of employers say hiring people skilled in AI has become a priority, but three out of four who have this requirement find it hard to find the right AI talent. Ninety-two percent of over one thousand U.S. organizations surveyed plan to use AI-related solutions by the year 2028. Most employers believe their IT departments will benefit the most from the technology. They also believe that other departments, from marketing to human resources, will find some value too. Forty-nine percent of employers and employees believe that AI could boost overall productivity. Now, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Zhang Gong, professor with University of International Business and Economics, Israel. So, Professor Guang, so what type of technical innovation is AI? What is a precedent from the previous innovation that could help to understand the potential impact of AI on the labor market and the economy? For example, is AI similar to the internet, the computer, or electricity, or another technology? Um, well, first of all, I would say that AI、uh, is essentially technological innovation based on. Uh, mathematical and computational capabilities human beings have developed over the years to essentially mimic human thinking.、Um, you know, this is a very、uh, lofty goal that has been researched upon for many decades,、uh, as far as I know.、Uh, and I think the recent breakthroughs、uh, is mostly associated with, you know, deep learning、uh, and, and, and、uh, other statistical and computational models that have been developed over the years. And, and I think this is.、Uh, This is for the first time we're starting to see、uh, this technology to to really think like humans, you know. And I think this is a, a major, major breakthrough. Now, in terms of your question about historical precedent、um, that could help to understand the potential impact of AI, I can、uh, think of the beginning of the、uh, industrial revolution,、uh, the use of steam engines, for example. One application, of course, is to be used in in in, in sailing ships.、Right? In old days, you know, they 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 use、uh, sails to power ships. Now,、uh, you know, typically, people use,、uh, these ships these days are all powered by、um, internal combustion engines or other steam engines. So, you know, it, it's this kind of a scale. The, the examples you also mentioned, like you know,、uh, electricity, for example, that's also a big revolution.、Mm. Um, so, so this is a Definitely a revolutionary technology. There's no doubt about it.、Mm. And a new survey shows that 73% of the employers say hiring talent with AI skills is a, a priority. But two out of three say they're having trouble filling those、uh, roles. And 92% of the U.S. organization plan to use AI at work by the year 2028. So, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, this is a revolutionary technology, and you know, it's not surprising to me that many、uh, companies and organizations plan to use or make use of this technology.、Um, so that's why we're seeing, you know, you know, 92% of U.S. organizations plan to use AI.、Um, the the issue is that whether the labor market can keep up with that demand.、Um, the the issue is respect to the university community will be able to、um, generate talents. Equipped with AI skills,、uh, that's a big challenge, I think.、Um, and it's not also not surprising to me that many companies are saying that、uh, they have difficulties of finding talents like that.、Um, it's just going to take some time.、Uh, the labor market is going to adjust,、uh, but there's a lag. Uh, so, uh, so I think uh, you know, eventually、um, the supply side of the labor market will catch up with that. Mm-hmm. And it's been suggested that、uh, in the next decade, more than fifty percent of jobs in the world will be replaced by AI. So, what kind of jobs can be particularly vulnerable to AI competitors? It sounds like a, a, a kind of a scary prediction, but I, I, I have a lot of faith in that. I think yes,、um, there will be a lot of jobs replaced,、uh, just like the industrial revolution. The industrial revolution. Replaced a lot of old jobs, right? And、um, uh, the same thing is going to happen again. This time,、um, the the question about what types of jobs that are more vulnerable, 
to AI competitors. Um, I think the, the, the kind of a jobs that um, um, does not require a lot of creativity, does not require a lot of original thinking, probably is more likely to be replaced. It, it, it's, it's just a bad prediction. You know, for, for example, you know, people say that the journalist job, or people not, not, doing, not people doing investigative journalism, but I think like, more like people writing press reports, press releases, stuff like that. I mean, mm. a, a, an AI machine can, can write you know, hundreds of uh, press releases overnight within like a few minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and we don't need a lot of people writing these press releases anymore. Uh, that's just one example. I, I, I think uh, maybe Professor Job is also at stake. Um, I think that you know, I don't think there's any reason why that job cannot be replaced. If on if just we're talking about a teaching side, maybe on the research side is a little bit of a different. Um, so uh, so so you know, I think for sure many many jobs will be replaced. But one thing I want to say is that I don't want to sound like a. Uh, a, a Luddite, you know, uh, hating jobs being replaced by machine and by technology. But but I do uh, want to make one point that, uh, you know, the history never failed human beings um, in terms of creating new types of jobs every mm. time an event like this happens, right? Uh, you know, industrial, the Industrial Revolution replaced a lot of jobs, but at the same time, it also generated a lot of jobs uh, too. So, so I think um, probably the same thing is going to happen uh, with the AI revolution. Many jobs will be replaced. At the same time, many more jobs will be created. Mm, and what kind of new jobs, you know, will emerge as AI become more and more pervasive? I think um, jobs related to applying AI technology, developing AI technologies, or the application of AI technologies, you know, these jobs probably will be will be created. Um, in other words, um, it's it's not like you know. People managing things or doing things—it's the people managing machines, people making machines doing things. I guess you know that's the kind of jobs probably uh, will be uh, will be uh, generated. Uh, it's not that scary. I think the point is that the people need to uh, keep learning. I guess mm-hmm. right, <laughs> and uh, and a new uh, the new trend would also ordain the university communities to um, provide educations and training. Uh, people to 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 move towards that direction. Right? Mm, yeah, exactly. And how should our educational system adapt to prepare the individuals for an AI dominant yeah. future? Yeah, so I think um, you know this is a, is a very big issue. Uh, I think uh, I'm always an advocate for preparing for the future, preparing for new technologies, preparing for the uh, AI era. I think uh, you know the university curriculums, the um, the the education models, the, you know, the teaching staff, the faculty members, all of these things will have to be uh, reassessed um, and, and planned for the long run. Um, I think it calls upon the university leadership to, to essentially um, adopt a revolutionary approach to this. You know, major big decisions have to be made. What kind of uh, education we're going to provide to our customers? What kind of faculty members we're going to bring into the universities? These are big issues, um, and I think it needs some audacity and courage to uh, to move ahead with that. That was Zhang Gong, professor with University of International Business and Economics, Israel. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for immediate ceasefire in Gaza in an extraordinary summit with BRICS leaders. Israel and Hamas confirm deal on temporary truce and releasing hostages. China and Uzbekistan hold first foreign minister's strategic dialogue in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now. 